Welcome back, you guys, to another episode of the Good Grow Great Podcast. I'm Talia Toha. I'm your host. And today, we are going to be talking about New York Times bestselling books, behind the scenes of writing a book, what that looks like, but also, more importantly, how to stay calm, focused, grounded, and centered amidst all the chaos and craziness of our lives. And we are going to be chatting with Dr. Pedram Shojai, a.k.a. the Urban Monk. He had been featured on USPN, Dr. Oz, Today Show, New York Magazine, and on and on and on. And he is so cool. He's going to be sharing behind the scenes of what it really took to write his New York Times bestselling book, The Urban Monk, which has since been translated into 30 different languages. So cool. Also, what you need to know before thinking about writing, if you've ever thought about this, this is the episode to dip into. And he's going to be talking about how he wrote six books, bestsellers, and his latest book, Trauma, Healing Your Past to Find Freedom Now. And we're also going to be diving into hidden facts that can actually make or break a book or even your business, which is really some really surprising and insightful stuff that Pedram is sharing with us. What's also super cool is that he is going to be sharing with us how he grew an avid audience of over 1 million readers across multiple platforms and the real difference between using a publisher versus self-publishing. And you might be surprised about what the real differences are. Uh, I'm also going to be sitting down and being all ears about how he created a work from home setup and boundaries and successfully work from home, even with kids, which is so cool. So if you're a stay at home parent or even if you're just working from home and you're trying to figure out how to kind of stay away from all those distractions, this is the one to, to listen into. He's also going to be talking about what most people don't know about being of service while sticking to your gut, right? Having that kind of intuition about what's what are some things that you should be doing, what are some things that you shouldn't be doing, and all the while earning handsomely. So this is such a great, great episode. So many great gems that you guys are going to be able to take home and just pull apart and just deconstruct and figure out and adopt and adapt. But before we do that, grow solvers, be sure to hit follow, subscribe, add or collect. Let's dive in. Pedram, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited that you are here. And uh, last time when you and I connected, we actually connected over your New York Times bestseller and how you kind of made that a reality, which I think is fantastic. And you were sharing value bombs here and there on how people can learn about this process some more. But before we dive straight into that, I want to actually touch on um, and your on your book and why you started writing, um, you know, this this book and what was kind of the ideation and the genesis of that? Yeah, I mean, I started writing books back in 2010. Um, I never thought of myself as an author, to tell you the truth. Um, I was just a doctor guy, a priest guy doing my thing. Um, and then I ended up doing some instructional DVDs with a group um, on Qigong and some stuff that I taught. Um, and they did well. And they're like, hey, you know, you, you, we should do a movie, we should do a book. And all this kind of stuff started to just move. Right. And, um, you know, it was still very small, um, boutique 
industry. I mean, Qigong isn't something most people can even pronounce. And so it was something that, you know, I got a small $5,000 advance with a small publisher. I ended up doing a lot of the work, um, took forever, right? Um, And put out a book back in 2010 called Rise and Shine. Um, but I had a book out, right. And it was, you know, I had a certain amount of fans that came with it and, um, you know, I didn't know what to do with it. Obviously, you know, it's like, who knows how to market a book. And so it came out, but then I got into film and after I made my first film, um, I realized that the film distribution models were just really garbage and you just hand your baby over and say someone else raise it and, you know, tell me how it does. And so I shifted the model to a freemium based online distribution model. I got a 125,000 emails from people who wanted to watch the movie in the first three weeks. And I had a lifestyle program that I sold to support it. Um, and then that kind of built me if you will. Um, then I, you know, I had an email list, which I didn't realize was a thing. Um, and then I bought the domain well.org and then started kind of building, uh, you know, the asset around health and wellness content. Um, and, you know, started understanding better how to navigate that game and, and, you know, pull in more emails and have an audience that listens and opens your emails and all that. And that's when, you know, the, the book business suddenly got much more interesting. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up the, this kind of jungle of book publishing and how you kind of, even when, when you were starting out, you're like, this is crazy. And you, uh, I mean, we kind of know theoretically, right? Like the audience know theoretically, okay, with the publisher, you have people behind you and all these things, but can you share maybe some of the top differences that perhaps you didn't know when you were starting out um, between the two different models. Yeah. Well, I've just to be clear, I've never self-published because my first one was still published. It was just small. Right. And um, so they did, you know, the, the, you know, the binding the book and the ISBNs and submitting it to all the, th- there's a lot of stuff that happens to get a book to have an identity and exist. Now it's easy. I mean, you just go on Amazon and go Balboa or, you know, there's a lot of ways to self-publish that are, you know, remarkably easier than um, they were when I got started. Um, and so, but just to, to, you know, kind of jump to your question, there is stuff. I mean, listen, there's copy editing, there's design, there's, you know, layout, internal layout, external layout. There's the, you know, get this thing registered stuff that I've never even done. I mean, it can't be that hard, but you know, there's people who do it. Um, and then there's the, how do you get on Amazon, which is easy now, but how do you get in Barnes and Noble? How do you get into Rite Aid? And so, you know, a traditional publisher will, do that work. They will really, you know, they'll do the footwork and get you into as many outlets as they can. And that's where they're actually pretty good, right? They're good at the logistics. They're good at the printing. They're good at getting, you know, boxes of books over from China and, you know, all that stuff. They're really terrible at promoting. And so if you have a promotional vehicle and you know how to promote your own stuff and you got a business that, you know, you already have an audience for, and you say, click here and they buy this, then yeah, self-publishing becomes a much more interesting avenue. Or if you just don't have a list and you can't get a publisher, self-publishing is, you know, and you want to write a book, that's that's what you got, right? Um, uh, so, but then you got to do a little bit more of the footwork. Now, do you need your book to be sitting in Barnes and Noble? I mean, I haven't been in a bookstore in a year and a half. I mean, assuming, you know, the, the you know, COVID goes away completely and there's like a resurgence of all that. Um there's a, there's a real competitive um, 
market around shelf space in bookstores, in Target, Walmart, and all that stuff. And so you really got to play the game and um, push. I mean, one out of a thousand books get lucky and they just kind of catch fire and go. But you got to push because you're competing with a lot of um, distracted uh, humans and a lot of other people trying to take, you know, mental market share. And so, you know, what do you do? It's like I, my, my second book, I had like, I think it was like a $500,000 advance because I had a list and I, you know, somebody, and I was able to do that kind of stuff. I swear I probably spent all of it on marketing and promoting the book. And lo and behold, it became a New York times bestseller. Um, and I ended up making my money on foreign rights and, you know, other stuff downstream, but, you know, don't go buying a house with that money. If you actually want that book to go anywhere. Right. And, and, and that's something that, you know, most authors will tell you. And plus those come in one third installments, you're spending a lot of time doing this. Uh, by the time the first check comes, you're paying PR. By the time, you know, it's like there's a lot of things to do to become really good at that game. And um, look, if you want to be, I've, I, I think I have seven or eight books out now. Like I, I get paid to write books. It's great. But it wasn't easy to start. It took a minute. Yeah. Right. More than a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Long minute. <laughs> yeah. So you touch you, you touched on how, you know, one of the most important things it sounds like that you did earlier on when you were uh you got your first few books out was really kind of having this plan almost, right? For having this audience. And obviously it's different if people already have a huge list and a huge kind of audience. If you were to share a couple of things to perhaps someone who's listening to this and they go, well, I don't have anything. I don't know. I don't have anyone, Pedram, and I'm I'm just new at this, but I have this amazing idea. Do you recommend a time that they would build up that? Is it like a year? Do you feel, you know, like, or do you see, do you see like a proportionate amount of numbers in the book sales versus like the amount of our audience obviously depends on the engagement, right? What can you share with people who are like raising their hands and going, but Pedram, how do I even start this? If, you know, is it, it's like a chicken and egg. So how do I, how do I do this? Right? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a tough question because, you know, look, you can land an interview that suddenly gets you 2 million Instagram followers. Um, I, you know, I pray for miracles, but I don't expect them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like that's just not, that's not reality for the 99.9%. And so the rest of us got to, you know, grab a shovel and dig. And so what does that look like? I mean, so okay, so what's your topic? What is the audience? Who are they? How do you get in front of them? How do you engage them? Do you want to create a blog identity and get a bunch of blog followers? You know, it's easier nowadays because, you know, you could do an Instagram uh, campaign and really build up your identity on one or multiple social platforms and then say, hey, come check me out over here, sign up for my newsletter or get my free XYZ and build up an audience and go. I can tell you, you start to get interesting around 50,000 for small time publishers and 100,000 for bigger publishers, but they're, they're onto it now. It's like, I could buy a list of 100,000 people that don't ever open an email yeah. and that's garbage. Yeah. They want to see engagement. They want to see how avid your fans are. If you say jump, they, you know, they say, ask how high those are the people that'll end up buying your books because look, you know, I have a huge, I have a million plus, right, on on our lists, right, and a small percentage of these people want to read. 
right? Who the hell's got time for, for reading? Like your eyeballs are busy doing other things. And so they'll get some audiobooks. They'll do this. They'll do that. But reading books is, you know, it's, it's a challenging marketplace. And so I drive huge numbers because I have huge numbers to, to back me, right? And even then, it's like a minuscule percentage. Yeah that end up buying books. And so, you know, I ended up doing a lot of PR. I've been in, you know, multiple, you know, on Dr. Oz six times. I mean, I did the dance. And the first time I did Dr. Oz, I swear I thought my ship had come in and we might've sold like 300 books. Wow. That's it. Yeah. That's, 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 that's surprising. It. Yeah. And I'm like, damn, man, I just flew, flew from LA to New York and like didn't sleep and got up and was nervous and did all this stuff. And that was 300 books. It would have cost me less to just buy them from Amazon myself, yeah. right? And so you, it's just, it's a long tail game. So to come full circle and not, you know, scare anyone here, I would say, look, books are amazing if you understand the unit economics of what it takes to move this book. Um, I would absolutely look at self-publishing if you don't have a list and all that, if you're, you get a book in you and it's got to come out. Um, and so we can talk about two trajectories. One is build the list get a deal, which if you choose, we can, you know, get further into that. But if you have something going on and you got a message, then leverage your social media, leverage your aunts and uncles, leverage whoever you can to start building a groundswell and start selling those books. And look, you could, at self-publishing, you get it for two, three bucks a unit and sell it for 10 or 12. That's still a great margin. If you understand the game, right? Um, if you don't have a list, you don't need one. If you can cut, like, l- let me give you an example. And again, I don't want to get too like into the weeds, but I don't have time to mess around. Like, I'll just tell you what I do. Right. And, um, you know, I could buy a lead off of Facebook into say my, one of my funnels, multiple funnels, it ranges from like 70 cents to two bucks a lead for different funnels here, you know, free screening of this. I have a film, I have a series, I have a, a seven day program. And so let's just say it cost me a buck 50 to get someone into my, my seven day urban monk reboot. Um, and um, a certain percentage of those people are buying my Urban Monk Academy, which is a couple hundred bucks a year or whatever. And, and so I'm able to back that out and monetize that now I'm cash flow positive on lead acquisition. And then in all of our material, it's like, hey, there's a, there's a, there's a book to accompany it, right? And so right now we have a, a tonight, um, we have a series launching on trauma. And, you know, this is my latest book. It pubbed two days ago called Trauma. And we just put the book on the thank you page for the registration and had like 5% of the people go to Amazon and buy the book. Right. And so you start figuring out the unit economics so that the optimi- the optimized funnel mo- monetizes and what we call is it lead liquidates. It liquidates the price of the lead. Now you're getting paid to grab leads and you might be close to break even, but now you got book sales. For me, I know that um, a significant percentage of people who read my books come back to my academies. So I'm okay breaking even. I'm okay losing money for a month, um, getting people into our funnels because then they're like, hey, I like this guy. And they come back and they buy my books and they buy more. And the lifetime value of that $1.50 lead, say for that particular funnel is $4, right? Right, right. So I, you know, I've 3X'd my money. They bought a book. I didn't really get that money. I got it up front, right, from the publisher. But now, 
they, they love me and they're a fan. And when my next book comes out, it gets easier and easier and easier. That's why the first book is the first domino to fall. I'm on my eighth book and I keep going because I have an audience that keeps buying my books. Yeah. And I love this description and really the details that you've given because uh, somebody had mentioned this before as well. The, the idea that the book is part of an ecosystem, right? And it's really an, an access point to all of the other things that you can, ha- the ways that you can help them in your case, you know, with, with your programs and all these other things. And I'm kind of curious to hear if, if there are still kind of really that traditional book business, right? And um, people who really just focus on, um, you know, building a book business, writing a full-time, not so much focusing on the back end, having all of these services and offerings, but just the book and how one can, if their focus is just that, how one can, um, you know, how is that approach different, right, than than what you just described? I know um, several people who have done really well with free plus shipping offers. So they basically use the book almost as a lost leader to get it into people's hands, almost as like this amazing brochure for their ideas, thoughts, and linking back to their resources and their websites and all that. And there are a number of very good examples of that, those that have worked well for years, right? And I know Facebook had cracked down on them and, you know, it kind of comes and goes, but that business is a very well-articulated model. You better damn well know your math, right? Because, you know, um, I'm normally floating hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. And if there's one hiccup in my system, it's over you're out half a million bucks that you you're, you get burned. You could lose a farm very quickly. Right. And so you have to be very meticulous about cohort analysis and lifetime value and all sorts of geeky stuff that I had no idea about when I got into this stuff, but I also had a lot more hair. Um, <laughs> and you know what I mean? Like there's a whole business on that side, but it's like, it's almost like arbitrage. Like you are hedging hard to get, the profit eked out in 60 to 90 days, right? On some of those free plus shipping models. Um, So you better know what you're doing. Um, And the other one is just, hey, buy my book, right? And if you can make money on a 12 to $20 unit sale and your cost per unit is two to $4 and your cost per lead is, you know, $2 and it's compelling enough and it's targeted enough to get um, the right people to buy it, yeah. That's a business, right? And it's wonderful because now you're building a fan base by selling them your book. Your book numbers are starting to run up. Now, this is again, this is the self-published model. Like it's not going towards book scan. You're not, there's no feather in your cap to say, look at me, I'm a New York Times bestseller. But who cares, right? You're selling books and you're helping people. And you know, once you have solid numbers, then you could go to a publisher if you choose on the next round and be like, look, look at me. And they're going to say, wow, look at that. Talia knows what she's doing. How about that? You know, here's a book deal. Here's money, right? Um, but they want, to, they want to understand that you can market yourself. And they want to understand that you have the sophistication to move these units because it's just not a really high profit business. And they're like, they're like venture capitalists, right? And I've been with Random House, Penguin, uh, Penguin Random House. I've been with Rodale. I've been with Hay House. 
it literally is like a, you know, one out of 10 kind of breaks out and makes them money and the other ones lose. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a tough business. Yeah. I think a lot of people are are unaware of just that, that ratio, even that you just mentioned, you know, and, and that's a lot of people just see really the, the sexy part and, oh, this is cool and all that. And without realizing that it, there is, there's quite a bit of, um, uh, I don't want to say hair, but there's quite a bit of, <laughs> of things going on behind the scenes. And I want to kind of touch real briefly uh, on your uh, your recent book and, you know, trauma. And um, can you share, well, A, I am kind of curious what the <laughs> the origin story is. I don't know if you've shared this uh, um, uh, about uh, where the origin story is. Of, uh, of the concept of urban monk, right? And, um, but also like, how does that now play into your new book, Trauma? And what are you trying to accomplish with this book? Yeah, so I've written, I wrote Rise and Shine. I wrote Urban Monk. I wrote The Artist Stopping Time. Inner Alchemy was Rise and Shine redone and resold to Sounds True. Um, I wrote another one, um, and then I wrote, I wrote um, Focus, which came out in November. The three new ones, two of which are out, were Exhausted Trauma and one's on Conscious Parenting. And what happened is once you kind of, you become somebody, then they come, they start coming to you. And so we did a three, 10 part series, docu-series deal with Hay House where they got the book rights. Um, but, you know, they built the books on, you know, thousands of hours of transcripts from the world's experts and they were ghostwritten. So I actually have two books out in the world right now that were ghostwritten by an exquisite writer. It's actually a great book. I'm like, damn, I wish I wrote that good. <laughs> um, and um, it, it's a summary of all the best expert advice from a 10 part documentary series that my, my partner Nick and I put together. Um and it's a book and it's out there selling. So I, I really had my trepidation and, and, you know, I had a lot of issues around ghostwriting. I like, I'm an author, right? I like writing my own books. Um, these came out pretty good and I was able to put out three books in a year. I don't have that kind of output, you know, with this brain. And so literally I'm just, I'm a machine now because I have people helping me produce. Yeah. And I think there's always that kind of, um, I think even for bloggers, right? A lot of people are kind of debating, okay, well, should we should we delegate this to someone else who can A, do it better and B, do it faster, you know? And I wonder, was there resistance before you kind of went into accepting, you know, that that process for you? It was a no, I mean, it was a, it was a non-starter because I simply, A, A, because Nick's name was on it too. So it's like, here's some other dude and, you know, go good luck finding voice. And, you know, he's not, he's written one book. And so, you know, I I don't want to be in a fight with my best friend within a month, right? Like it just, it was, it was a non-starter. So we said, look, if we're going to do this, they're going to be ghostwritten. Um, I'm uncomfortable about this. And we interviewed a number of people until we found someone who we really liked. We liked her writing style. We liked her as a human. She took more time than I think she wanted to interviewing myself and Nick and really getting our voices and our personalities. And and it was, like I said, it was exquisite. It's a really good book. I was like, wow, okay. I am now a believer, right? Um, and it's not like I want all my books ghostwritten. I still have a lot to say, um, but I, I simply can't do that kind of volume alone. 
Yeah. Well, and I love that that's kind of the approach, just having the freedom to be like, okay, you know what? It's okay. We'll share the spotlight a little bit and, um, and, and just allow the work to be out there. And really this is for the, in the service of the readers and people who are going to be benefiting from this. And it's better even if maybe we take ourselves out of the equation in some, in some ways. Right. So I like that approach a lot. And um, so can you share a little bit more about, um, you know, the, the latest book that you have, and um, how should people, when they're thinking about this book, um, you know, what what's kind of the the I guess the re- result and the output and the goal that they're they perhaps can expect from reading this book? So I'm going to back up two books. So trauma is out. Trauma is just a, a, an exquisite um, tool for anyone who has trauma in life. And um, it's just a very, very good, helpful, useful, moving book. Um, but it's not really like my formula. So I'd rather back up one book and talk about my formula. Um, this is the galley. So this is not the pretty one, but this the closest within reach. So focus, it has a ton of resources, a ton of videos and meditations and all kinds of things that I created for my audience. Um, just and you've got to lean in and do just excellent work and be of service, right? Because people can smell that. Like it's not a marketing book, but it's got a ton of extra stuff for them. And what I did is I created a 21-day focus program, like an accompanying program, 21 days of videos. Here's some exercises. Here's some extra, you know, resources and meditations. And I spent, you know, tens of thousands of dollars doing stuff I didn't need to do to continue to serve my readers and hold their hand and be like, I got you. Yeah. Right. And so anyone who buys the book can get it for free. Right. And um, I'm telling you, it becomes the long game of brand building and relationship building done the right way is just serve, serve. I understand that these guys came to me with a problem and their time is tight. Yeah. Right. And so to spend however long it takes to read a book, I mean, I can read a book in a day or two, but you know, with kids and life, I mean, people sit on a book for a month or two. So to spend a month of your life with this guy, that's a, that's a huge uh, commitment from the reader. And so you have to take that um, with a lot of, of gravity and, and lean in and prove that you're there to help them and serve them. Right. Um, and so all this marketing shit that's out there, you know, it's a lot of these people are just insincere. So the, my, the real secret to my success is look at the end of the day, you are serving humans that are asking for help. And the more that comes through in your writing and the more that comes through in like your, your offerings and everything, it's a, it's a free course. I spend a lot of time doing it, but then those people are like, Hey, I like this guy and they pay us money and they keep our lights on and, and, and good things happen. Uh, but it becomes a virtual cycle of, of service and, um, what's the right word? Compensation from people who are very appreciative. And why, I'm kind of curious to hear your take on why even just that idea of real service is hard for most people. And and by most people, I'm including all of us because of course we're, you know, yes, we're social animals, but we're also human beings, individuals, right? And need to care for ourselves. Can you expand on why this could be? And maybe this touches on some of the topics that you touch on in your books, right? And why is it so hard for us to keep that focus, right? And, um, and pun intended, and uh, and and still be there for other people. 
Yeah, it's it was hard. It was a very difficult task for me coming down from the monastery to like touch that yucky business stuff, right? Mm. Um, and I had to learn it because we were flailing. And then when I learned it, um, I realized how gross most of it was. And then, you know, being a practitioner of Taoism and Buddhism, there's all these, you know, concepts of right livelihood and how you should do it. And it took me a while to really integrate that in my own consciousness, because I, for me, I just had like a money is evil judgment on all things business. And um, you can't do that. You got to know what the hell you're talking about, right? Like I understand my cohort analysis. I understand our cost per lead. I understand all sorts of things that I didn't want to touch. And guess what? Once I understood that I didn't turn into, you know, Lucifer himself, I was able to scale my monastic training in messaging that helped millions of people. And so it's just, I had to get over my own hangups around that. Yeah. And how did you, if we can take it down to kind of a more granular level for the audience who's listening and kind of curious and they feel this tension, right? Of, okay, good versus evil. I want to serve, but I also want to be successful, right? And there's this constant pull and feeling like, oh, I have to be like that. <laughs> like you were saying, kind of this um, icky feeling. But at the same time, how do we advance this other mission that that we feel is important for you when you kind of had that light bulb turn on? What were some of the steps perhaps that you took to to make that possible, you know, aside from understanding the numbers, understanding that, okay, it doesn't have to be all evil, yeah, and, and a lot of it is just scar tissue and and learning the hard way. Uh, even with focus, um, we started off on the wrong path. Um, when I did Urban Monk, I did um, this course called the Seven Day Reboot, which I had a ton of affiliates and traffic and everyone just kind of, you know, sent into it saying, hey, this, you know, our friend is doing this seven day free course. Um, in honor of his book launch. And there was no strings attached. They would just come in and, you know, by the end of the seven days, it's just the law of reciprocity. And if you look at, you know, listen to Seals, uh, Cialdini and all these guys, there's just kind of marketing precepts to people feeling um, not indebted to you, but feeling like they need to hook you up because you hook them up. In Japanese, it's called giri, right? It, we have words for that. Um, and so I did it and it was exquisite. And the book hit New York Times bestseller in the first week and all that. Um, and then I didn't really do too many big book campaigns. I didn't care about being a New York Times bestseller multiple times. None of that matters to me. I just wanted to move books and help people. And then for focus, it was like, okay, let's put a little energy into this because I haven't, you know, done that in a few years. And my other books sell fine, but they didn't go stratospheric. Um, but then I consulted with Dave Asprey, who's a friend of mine. I consulted with some people in the industry and they're like, oh, you do this. And you say, okay, go buy the book and then put your receipt in here. And then you get this free thing. And I was like, oh, I guess that's how it goes. And I didn't pressure test it against my own gut. Like I, mm. I was like, eh, I don't like that, but I guess that's what's working now. And it just didn't work as well. And then I flipped it and just made it free. And all of a sudden, everyone starts buying the book because it just felt a little gross. Like you do this and I'll give you this. Is that really free? No, it's not, right? And so I listened to marketing advice that didn't come from my own moral barometer. And I quickly shifted it to be like, no, 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 no. Make this free to everybody. And if they care, if they like this guy, they'll buy his book, Yeah, right? And so a lot of it has to do with just your own kind of internal nexus of control and your own internal kind of spidey sense of what feels good and what feels right to you, but also just good brass tacks and marketing knowledge to understand, you know, people don't 
care about saving planet earth. People care about getting <laughs> laid. People don't <laughs> yeah. care about, you know, um, being healthy. They care about being skinny, which means, you know, care about getting laid. And I'm being a little flippant here, but it's always Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you have to catch them where they're at. Not like, you know, I did a whole movie on conscious capitalism and it was my least popular movie and it was my favorite movie, right? Because no one cares about saving the planet. They care about, you know, making mortgage, right? And so you have to understand these principles and then backdoor how you want to help them in through give them what they need by offering them what they think they they need. Right. And so I didn't make the rules, right? Like it's just the game that needs to be played to help these people because they don't even understand what their problem is. Yeah, this is, I love this. This is, this is so great and so on point. And I think it is hard for a lot of people to, to remember this, particularly if you're just starting out, right? But even throughout, throughout the career and people who are, uh, have offerings and services, it's hard to kind of remember, remember this. And I like what you just said about having this nexus of control and just understanding that gut feel and doing almost like a gut check, right? And, how can people be a lot more aware of that? Like that, I know that in a lot of places, and I don't know if this is just the function of the way that we live our lives now, because we're so busy, we're looking at everything like a hundred times a day. um, And we're, we're not in tune with what we really believe. And so how can we in the modern world now, with everything that's going on, continue to have that, uh, again, that nexus that you were talking about? I mean, I used to be an apologist about this because I figured no one would do it, but now I'm just, I'm, I'm very adamant about what I'm about to say is if you're not meditating or doing a mind body practice every day of your life, it's like not flossing. There's going to be gunk that adds up and you're going to have cavities. Um, I don't think we stand a chance without a practice that brings our attention back inward to, uh, empower the prefrontal cortex, shift to parasympathetic. I mean, I could geek out on this. I literally wrote chapters on, on in focus about this. Um, but the attention economy is trying to pull you out of that every second of your life with marketing messages, with political messages, with you're not good enough, you're not pretty enough. And you don't stand a chance if you don't take control of your own mind. And look, meditation has been around for 6,000 years. If you don't like that word, pray. If you don't like that word, do Tai Chi. But do something that that shifts and brings that internal nexus of control back within here so that your consciousness activates and you become more conscious. And is there, and because I've hear, I've heard a lot of people share that they are they're good with the meditation in specific amounts, right? Like they they're good in the afternoon, but they can't for some reason they can't do it in the morning. You have a kid, I have a kid too, and so what do you what do you suggest if somebody just wants to start out um, with kind of being aware of where things need to be? What's the amount that you feel is okay? Well, is it just case by case, or is there like something that you feel like is okay, this is the minimum viable amount? Yeah, you know, this conversation always, you know, kind of slips into let's make a deal, right? And it's, you know, okay, how about five minutes, right? Can I do five, right? (laughs) What's the smallest amount? (laughs) That's it, that's it. And, you know, look, I'm meditating right now. 
Right. It, it, the answer is it should be part of your operating system. It should be something that you're constantly doing with every breath. Now, how do you stoke that fire? I like mornings. First thing in the morning, just set your alarm 30 minutes earlier, meditate for 15 and get going, right? Um, and then allow for that to build a discipline that you continue to roll forward into your lunch break, into the evening and whatever. But the more you do, the better your life gets, right? And the conversation has always been with you know thousands of patients and you know I've been around this block. It's like, okay, what's my minimal? And you're like, yo, no, no, that's the wrong. <laughs> the, the, the wrong approach is where we're coming from. The right approach is how much meditation can I sneak in throughout my day? Can I get 23 and a half hours in while my eyes are open and I'm running my life? Because that's when I'm going to be a real badass, right? And so I think that that conversation needs to be kind of judo flipped back on itself um, because negotiating for the least amount of time puts us in a position where it's never going to work because our consciousness is still time compressed and in not making time for the thing that's most valuable, which is the spaciousness of drinking from infinity. Yeah, I love this. And I, I think this kind of leads me to the last question, which is, what's your take and what's your approach on, and I can kind of sense where this is going and having kind of heard you speak, and uh, what's your approach on how to allow for the, you know, as much time possible to do that when you have, for instance, uh, variables that are slightly uncontrollable, maybe the kids, right, coming in and all these things. And I know a lot of our audience are struggling with this. They carve out a time and then things kind of get in the way. What's your, um, what's your approach there? Boundaries. Um, my kids know when they come in in the morning and I'm sitting there meditating, they could either sit down next to me and meditate or leave me alone because daddy's got to get his. I'm running a film studio. I'm running a gajillion things and nobody can afford for daddy to fall. And daddy needs his sanity and it starts on that cushion in the morning. And so just good boundaries. My kids, like my daughter will come sit with me and meditate more. My son's less likely, but they'll just meditate with me in the mornings. And then I'll hug them and kiss them and be like, okay, let's, you know, let's go get some breakfast. Who wants to feed the dogs? But just create the structure around it and don't let the inmates run the asylum. Amazing. I love that. Don't let the inmates run the asylum, uh, including ourselves. Perhaps we're the inmates. <laughs> Pedram, this had been fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Where can uh, people learn more about you or get your book? And then we'll wrap up the interview. Sure. Uh, two places, uh, theurbanmonk.com is where all my books and my uh, courses and education live. And whole.tv, W-H-O-L-E.tv is where all my film series and a gajillion uh, originals and all sorts of there's a new streaming service that's taking off um, that I started last year. Amazing. Pedram, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was great. Growth Solvers, be sure to hit follow, subscribe, add, or collect. Let's dive in. Thank you.